are super excited to have our guest with us here today. Dr. Justine Olson is a clinical psychologist in private practice in the Lakeview neighborhood of Chicago. She specializes in working with children, adolescents, and young adults. Her primary areas of focus are ADHD, autism spectrum disorders, anxiety, and depression. She has experience working in several school settings, including the Catholic school system and Evergreen Park. She has also worked in therapeutic and alternative school settings. In addition to the private practice, Dr. Olson serves as the chief clinical consultant for families and adolescents in recovery, a substance abuse treatment center for adolescents and young adults who struggle with substance abuse issues. Dr. Olson, thanks for being here. Hi, thanks for having me. Justine, we're so happy that you're back with us. You were a panel speaker when we had the screening of Angst, which was the documentary on anxiety, and we thought it'd be really good to follow up on some of the issues and questions that that documentary raises for us. So why don't you start off with anxiety? We're hearing a lot about anxiety. It's one of the fastest growing mental health challenges across all the populations. What is anxiety? Sure. Well, thanks for having me again. Um, I enjoyed angst. It was a wonderful experience. Um, anxiety, okay. Anxiety is a feeling of worry, fear, or apprehension about what is about to happen. So think about it like this. It's a future-based fear. It's something that hasn't happened yet, but we're kind of trying to calculate or determine what is about to happen. And I think it's important to distinguish that Sometimes when we're accurately perceiving or deducing that a situation might be dangerous or threatening, anxiety is actually a good thing. Um, we would hope that your body starts signaling you that something is wrong um, if, for example, you're in the woods and you come across a bear, or if you're standing in a building and you smell smoke. You don't know yet that there's a fire. You don't know if you're in the woods with a bear that you might be attacked, but you can pretty accurately deduce that you're in a situation where there might be some danger or a threat. Um, so in situations like that, you know, anxiety is a good thing. Even a job interview should heighten your anxiety or anticipation slightly because if you want the job, the outcome of that interview would mean something to you. So you should be thinking about how that impacts your future. Um, anxiety begins to become a problem when your reactions, thoughts, or feelings reach a level of intensity where um, it's not really warranted for the situation at hand. Justine, that makes a lot of sense that a, there's a certain level of anxiety that's actually helpful and preventative. As from a parent's perspective, when can you see a distinction between that normal anxiety and it becoming an anxiety disorder? Sure. Um, I think the first thing I would ask a parent to assess in their child would be um, when facing an anxiety-provoking situation, to what degree does your child experience danger, distress, or dysfunction? We call those the three Ds. So when you're thinking about danger, uh, does my child self-harm or have thoughts of harm to self? Uh, it could mean unhealthy coping, like becoming aggressive towards people or objects or maybe even in older kids using drugs or alcohol. It also can sometimes look like impulsive decision-making, right? So I didn't like something that happened at school, so I ran out the front doors and tried to go home. Mm -hmm. um, in terms of dysfunction, you want to ask, 
How adaptive are your child's coping skills? Do they communicate and try and talk out problems? Do they take time to relax and recharge and engage in activities that they enjoy? Or on the unhealthier end, are they having major blow-ups or avoiding school or friends? Are they using technology for hours on end to isolate to the point of you know, keeping themselves from activities that maybe they enjoy or they're supposed to be engaged in? And distress can be tricky, right? Because we said normal worry obviously causes some amount of distress, but we really want to hone in on the frequency and intensity of that distress. How often is worry at the forefront of what's going on for my child? Is he or she able to move on from problems? Can they recover from anxiety-provoking situations in a reasonable amount of time? And if you're finding that the answers to those questions are more often that the intensity and the frequency are higher and the behaviors are a little bit more dangerous or explosive or dysfunctional, um, that would probably be the time to start seeking out help to determine whether or not there's a disorder there. So I think when people hear the term anxiety, it can be kind of broad and uh, maybe even a little vague. Uh, I'm hopeful you could take us through some of the various types of anxiety and maybe the most common that you uh, come across in your practice. Sure. Um, well, generalized anxiety really is probably the most common presentation. I worry about many things. I worry about them often. Um, and a lot of times they, well, not a lot of times, but I worry more often than those things come to fruition, right? Mm -hmm. um, but there are other types of anxieties too. A, another one we see somewhat frequently are like specific phobias. So I'm afraid to fly or... Um, I'm afraid of spiders or um, I have concerns about the doctor or things like that. Um, a specific fear that leads to a person kind of like avoiding the situations that would bring them in contact with whatever that, that object or trigger is. Um, there's also social anxiety, right? So I worry and obsess about interactions I've already had or interactions I'm about to have. Um, and sometimes even there's, a, there's another form of anxiety called selective mutism where um, I enter certain situations and I can talk and interact and engage just fine, but in other situations like school or in front of authority figures, I have a hard time finding my words or, or can't find them at all. Um, you know, there are other disorders where, like, anxiety is a component, but it's not the entirety of the disorder, like um, post-traumatic stress or um, obsessive-compulsive disorder, to name a few. But there's many different ways that anxiety can kind of manifest itself into a disorder. One of the things that we see here a lot at school is that if a student is suffering from anxiety, he or she is also suffering from depression. Do you see that in your practice? Yeah, yeah, I think, I think that um, oftentimes they can co-occur. Um, there's not really one reason why anxiety and depression are um, what they call comorbid happening at the same time. But I would say, you know, one thing to think about is if you're experiencing a lot of anxiety and you don't have a healthy or adaptive way of dealing with it, um, oftentimes <laughs> you may have situations that you can point to where things didn't work out, right? 
So, um, and that can impact your mood, right? If, if I'm entering a situation that I think is gonna go bad and then it does go bad because I don't have a good way of handling whatever's happening, um, I, I'm probably gonna have some feelings about that. In addition to that, sometimes when that anxiety is in overdrive, right? So we're at the point of a disorder and we're constantly worried about what's coming next, you can really only worry for so long before it becomes difficult to maintain that. And you can reach a level of burnout. And I think what I see oftentimes with people who are overly anxious for a long period of time is that after a while it's like a switch flips and they just can't care anymore. So it's like I cared too much for too long and now I'm exhausted. And that's when I think we run into some of that depression. You talked a little bit about the comorbidity of depression and anxiety, but I'm particularly curious about the distinction between, uh, let's say, anxiety and ADD, because sometimes those symptoms can present uh, in, in the same way. Yeah, that's a good question. And it's a tough one too, right? Because yeah. um, the area of your brain that is affected, mostly executive functioning by attention deficit, right? So you're thinking, you're planning, you're organizing, your ability to emotionally relate to others. Um, that deficit in ADHD looks the same when you have somebody who's anxious who, you know, might be stuck in their head and not paying attention, but not because they can't pay attention, but because they've got something else going on. Um, so it's tough because you, um, ADHD and anxiety both have an impact on a person's ability to utilize that executive functioning. And the only way to really know is probably to gather some data. So I often recommend to a parent who's wondering, is my child anxious or do they have some attention problems? Go get some neuropsych testing done. Um, because when you're, when you get those tests and you gather that data, it often is really the only way to distinguish. Does someone have an issue here with processing speed um, or working memory or um, are they, overly emotionally concerned with their performance. And we all know that when, when we are trying to do something fast and we want to do a good job and those things exist at the same time, often our speed will go down, mm -hmm. right? And so um, having those tests done can really help you get some, some good clinical information about what's going on there. So Justine, we have a, a wide range of children here at AACA from preschool through eighth grade, and I'm curious to understand how anxiety might present itself in younger children versus older children. I guess I would say there's probably not really one overarching presentation in older versus younger children, but certainly as a child gets older, the things that can be triggers change, right? So in younger children, we often see more of that separation anxiety or not wanting to be away from caregivers. Um, and older children tend to worry a little bit more about things like, um, what kind of high school am I gonna get into? Or um, how do I belong with my friends? You know, do I, do I belong to my peer group? Am I accepted by uh, the people around me? So I would say the things that 
often, you know, same thing with adults, the things as our lives move and change, it changes the things that we worry about, right? Um, but another thing for parents to kind of pay attention to as their child is getting older, um, and really the earlier the better, right, uh, is what, how does your child approach their anxiety? Even if it's normal worry, um, do they tend to internalize or externalize their symptoms when they're struggling? So sometimes children who internalize will kind of withdraw into themselves and have a hard time describing or talking about what's going on with them. And at times when that, you know, when we're talking about the kind of anxiety that gets out of hand, it can lead to kind of like a more physical presentation where you'll find they start reporting more headaches or stomach aches. And I wanna clarify here that to those listening that that doesn't mean that they're faking those symptoms. Mm. It means that when they're not talking about them, there's more of a likelihood that they will manifest physically. Um, as opposed to someone who's more externalizing of their symptoms, um, they might be somebody who's more quick to react um, or to kind of like become overstimulated by their environment and what's happening. Um, and also they might kind of like take out how they're feeling on a family member. Um, and if you start to kind of look at how does my child cope, are they internalizing or externalizing, um, you can start to distinguish you know, what will be the better ways to help them manage or approach their worry and anxiety. So we've given parents a lot to think about in terms of what to look for and how anxiety presents itself, but what's your best advice for what parents can do to support an anxious child? I love that question. <laughs> I'm really glad you asked. Um, I think the number one most important thing that a parent can do to support their child is to address, address their own anxiety first mm. um, for a number of reasons. First of all, you are modeling for your child every day that you are either winning out over problems or problems are getting the best of you. Your child is watching and looking to you for how to navigate the world. Think about when you go out in public and something strange happens out of the ordinary. What's a child's first reaction? To look at a parent mm -hmm. and see what they're going to do next, right? So. Mastering your own anxiety is one of the major ways you can support them in learning how to deal with theirs. In addition to that, um, a good way to model that your own anxiety is well managed is to remain calm when they come to you with a problem or when they're feeling out of control. One really important component of this is to not solve problems for the child that the child can solve for themselves. When a child encounters a problem, this is an opportunity for them to build confidence and to strengthen their belief that they're capable of dealing with life stressors. And if they begin to believe that they are competent and capable to handle their problems, the less anxiety they'll experience. Um, and the best way for you to instill in them that you believe that they can do it is to communicate that through your own body language, that you're calm and confident that whatever's happening, they can deal with and you're there to support them, but not to fix it for them. I love that you said um, that parents should be calm and confident. One of the pieces of advice we always give to parents, um, something for them to, to keep in mind is that when your child is ready to talk to you, 
it might not be the best time for a parent, but they really need to recognize when that moment is, drop everything and be present for their child because when you're ready to talk to them, it might not be best for them and when they're ready to talk to you, it might not be the best time for you, but really to be present and engaged. Justine, I think it's also really important to think through, you talked about ways to support the child and there are some things that parents just naturally will try to do in thinking that they are helping their child. What are, what are a couple of things that parents should avoid doing? Um, well, I, I kind of want to reiterate that getting anxious with your child is a bad idea, and oftentimes so is rescuing them, right? So this kind of goes back to what I mentioned earlier about modeling. When your child is upset, it's actually a pretty natural reaction for you to feel something. We've got these things called mirror neurons in our brain where um, if I see someone else get angry in front of me or I see someone else tear up when someone's experiencing an emotion, um, our brains use that information to kind of cue our own reaction. So um, when your child starts sending off those cues that they're in distress, your physiological response is almost to get distressed with them. Um, so when you feel your child setting off those cues, you have to actively work not to jump on the panic train with them. Um, additionally, when they come to you uh, and it's within your power to make a certain situation, let's say, go away, um, please don't. <laughs> and, I, you know, obviously we have to take into consideration that there are some situations where a parent should intervene and step in. You have to use your, your best judgment. Um, but allow them the opportunity to face difficulty when difficulty presents itself. Uh, for example, if your child has a close friend, right, and uh, they have an argument, your child and this friend have an argument a few days before that friend's birthday party, and your kid comes to you and says, I don't want to go. Mm -hmm. um, you know, this is a great opportunity for them to figure out a way to navigate through that. Um, it would be very easy for you to say, great, you know, one less trip I have to make or one less mm -hmm. thing I have to do. Um, we can, that frees up time for us to spend together. Um, but more importantly, what have you just taught them? What have you taught them about friendship, about conflict, um, about avoidance, right? So there may be some situations where removing yourself is warranted, but when avoidance tends to be their pattern and you know it, it can often be, it should be a parent's job to kind of, you know, move them out of their comfort zone a little bit. That reminds us of a quote that we talk to our students' parents about, and that is that as parents, our role is to prepare the child for the path, not prepare the path for the child. I, I love it so much because there is really only this set period of time where you're able to kind of um, prepare the path for the child, and then that goes away. Um, I often say to parents all the time, um, 
you do not get to call your mortgage company and say, I was too anxious to make a payment. Mm -hmm. um, or, I'm so sorry, I can't come up to work today um, because uh, I'm not feeling like it. Today's a day I'd like to avoid. And so you want to, as much as you can, when you have them in your house for that 18 years, prepare them for what the world is going to um, present to them. So the more opportunities that you have to treat them exactly how everybody else will treat them in situations like that, you know, the better off they'll be. Justine, I'm hoping you can take us through some of the treatment options for anxiety, especially those treatment options that apply to children. Sure. Um, obviously, the most common interventions for children are therapy and medication if needed. Um, there's a lot of different types of therapy that can be utilized for anxiety. I think the most common would be uh, CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy, where someone is talking through their thoughts and feelings and behaviors and calling upon kind of the rational part of their brain to evaluate and break down those, some of those irrational beliefs and, and to improve coping strategies, right? Healthy coping skills. Um, for some people, like we talked about phobias earlier, um, for things like phobias, uh, exposure-based therapy is a great option. Um, it's utilized when someone needs help coping with a specific situation. Um, for example, public speaking or fear of flying or even, even calling people on the phone. I, I have a lot of teenagers and young adults that I do phone calls with because they don't know what to say and they feel ill-prepared Ill for what the other person is going to bring to that conversation. Mm -hmm. um, I just did one the other day with somebody whose insurance lapsed and they needed to call and just make the payment because they had had a credit card that expired. I don't know what the person is going to say. Well, let's do it here. Let's, let's work through it. Um, so this is where you expose somebody with the therapist present to um, kind of work through some of those stressful situations um, and use those anxiety-reducing techniques in the moment. What would be an effective way for parents to support the therapeutic process? I think that's a great question. Um, be involved. Uh, you know, I encourage parents all the time. I, you know, you don't necessarily have to be in your child's session and know every single thing that happens or goes on, but you should have a, a good idea of what is being worked on in therapy. Uh, what are the goals for my child's treatment? What are some of the buzzwords that are being used in that office? What's some of that language I can take home? Um, you know, I often recommend that a parent be present for like the first 15 minutes to check in to tell me maybe some of the things that happened during the week that the child might not necessarily bring up. Um, or to check in at the end to talk about kind of, you know, here's overall what we talked about and here are some things we talked about to address the situation and I'll just use like a, a brief example so if you have a child who's constantly seeking reassurance right um, tell me it's going to be okay well what about this thing tomorrow what if this what if this what if this um, they're looking to you to tell them you know, don't worry things will be alright but if you continue to provide that reassurance you've just kind of perpetuated that cycle that uh, I'm anxious and I need you to tell me that it's going to be okay. I can't believe that it's okay on my own. So oftentimes I'll tell a parent the next time that you guys start engaging in that pattern where they're seeking reassurance and you find yourself giving it, take them into the bathroom, 
have them look in the mirror and have them start telling themselves that it's gonna be okay and providing that reassurance to them. While you're there in the room, you can even give them some of the things to say, but we're gonna change that dynamic a little bit so that they can start to believe in their own ability to you know, feel like it's going to be okay. But parent involvement, I think, is, is a crucial point. And I, I, tell, I tell parents all the time, I have your kid for 60 minutes. You have them for the other 23 hours a day. If you can learn to do the things that we're talking about doing in here, then they'll be much more successful than if they're just getting this one hour a week. So we've covered a lot of ground for how parents can be involved and how parents can be supportive, but we haven't talked about medication. Mm-hmm. And that can bring a wide range of emotions and thoughts in parents. So I'm just curious from your perspective when parents should really consider um, medication for their child. Sure. Um, you know, the decision to medicate obviously is a difficult one for parents to make. I, what I like to in, encourage parents to do is to give therapy a try first without medication and see if we're able to achieve some improvement, right? So if we can do without medication uh, the same thing that maybe just even medication could do without therapy, let's try and use some of those interventions first. If we find that, you know, um, after a period of time, that child is still highly anxious, I'll often recommend that they consult with a psychiatrist um, to discuss medication. In some cases, if medication is needed to address that chemical imbalance, it actually can make therapy um, more effective, right? So if I have a very anxious child who can't really attend to what's going on um, in that 60 minutes because they're kind of all over the place, and then we address that um, with medication, when needed, right, when a doctor decides that it's needed, um, it can often make them more available to participate in things that are going on in, in the therapy room. So, um, you know, therapy first, if that doesn't work, maybe it's time to involve a medical professional. So children spend a very long time in school, in the classroom. What advice do you have for the teachers in terms of supporting an anxious child? I think my advice would be probably pretty similar to what I would tell parents, right? Um, You wanna build connection with each student in your classroom. Um, You wanna know whether or not they're an internalizer or an externalizer. Um, Most importantly, I think for every child though, would be instilling the belief that you believe that they're capable of moving through whatever the problem is that faces them. Um, I also like uh, to encourage teachers to create space in their room for kids to take a timed break and to be able to come back after using a coping skill. Um, you know, it, it doesn't do a lot of good to have a kid um, sit in their worry, oftentimes in a busy environment, giving them a specific amount of time to kind of like relax and decompress and then move out of that and move on to another activity is a good idea. But um, I would say being a safe space for them, creating a safe space for them and allowing them the opportunity to to hear and know that you believe they can can do it, uh, to encourage them that whatever it is that they're facing, they'll be able to work through it, I think is really important. Dr. Olson, we can't thank you enough for taking the time to come in and talk with us about anxiety and how parents can support their child, 
what to look for, and what our teachers can do to help our students. This issue can bring up about many questions. Um, how can parents connect with you uh, if they have additional questions or are interested in um, hearing more from you? Sure. Um, our practice is located right here in Lakeview. It's called Lakeview Psychology Group. Uh, the best way to get in touch with me would probably be by email. My email is dr.olson at lakeviewpsychology.com. They can also visit the website, lakeviewpsychology.com, or you can find us on Instagram, at lakeviewpsychology. Thanks so much. Uh, we really appreciate your time. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Matt and I hope that you have found this podcast on anxiety helpful. We encourage you, if you have any concerns that your child may be suffering from an anxiety disorder, to reach out to his or her teacher or Matt and I. We look forward to bringing you a new podcast on a monthly basis. So please subscribe so you don't miss the next episode which should come to you shortly after the new year. We hope you and your family have a great holiday season.